Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. We left off in our last episode speaking of how Jesus' parents had laid the foundation for Jesus to heed God's calling. We have an unprecedented responsibility to do the same for this generation, to do for them what was not done for us. By God's grace, we are here, hand-picked to lay a foundation in this generation that will continue its effect for many generations to come, by the power of God's Spirit. So we are not to get distracted, but be purposeful, seizing every new day and opportunity to continue laying the foundation of Jesus Christ in our hearts and in the minds and in the hearts of our children every day. Remember, God cares more for our kingdom involvement and work than any other thing that you may be caring about in your life. If we're going to follow in Jesus' steps and be messengers of the gospel, ambassadors of reconciliation, we need to make sure we are well grounded in our divine identity and that our center and circumference is Jesus Christ. Then, and only then, will we be fit for the next step in our spring season as Christians, calling others to follow us as Jesus did. But before we get to that step, just remember, God cares for you more than you know. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew ten twenty-eight through 34 It reads, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Even though Jesus is reassuring us of our value before God, he's not mincing words when it comes to the perils of life as well, the distractions and the loyalties that can cost your soul. So beware, keep yourself loyal to Jesus. That is worth more than all the gold more than all the precious stones or possessions that you can imagine. You may say, what's the big deal? I know I'm worth more than sparrows. Well, remember Jesus' point here. If God thinks sparrows are a big deal, and Jesus says not one of them falls to the ground outside of his care, how much more attention does he give your life? How much more does he care for you? Every single day that passes, you cannot imagine the ways God is ministering to you, 
the infinite calculations, details, and operations God is doing on your behalf at the same time he's doing for countless others, saving you from perils you can't even think of and aligning things to be in your favor that you may not even think are in your favor because you cannot see that far in your future. And sometimes it's not even about you, but about your children or your children's children and a million other details he has taken on to ensure your life moves on in the direction he would like for you to go. As John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of only three of them. I'll give you an example. I care about my FICA score, as you probably do. I care about having financial stability. Before, I used to care about it for purely selfish reasons. Now I do so more for my wife and my family. I try to be a responsible person with my money and my commitments. I'm pretty OCD about this, so I don't bite off more than I can chew, financially speaking. But some time ago, when I was called to come back to New York to work at the Long Island Church of Christ, I had to resolve a mortgage from a condo I had bought with my wife when we got married. Going back to New York meant I had to sell the condo and everything else in order to start over in New York. No big deal. I had already done that three years prior when I went to Puerto Rico. So as the date approached for me to leave Puerto Rico... I was getting a little worried because the condo had not sold, and I started to feel the pressure. That made me get on my knees to pray many times. I wasn't going to be able to afford a mortgage and also rent. God was very gracious with us. There was a brother and a sister living in Staten Island who accommodated us. So we went from living in a brand new condo, having two cars, two salaries, to living in an attic with one salary and only one cardboard box with all our possessions. It was a purging I was familiar with since the same happened when I left New York to preach the gospel in Puerto Rico. On our first night in that attic in Staten Island, my wife and I looked at each other. It was like a surreal dream. What had just happened? Our heads were spinning. And I was so encouraged by my wife's attitude through all of this. After all, she left her family, her job, her career, a new home to come with me to the unknown in New York City. She trusted the Lord. I was absolutely sure about that. And there were more tests to come. I was able to swing paying these brothers rent and moved into their basement. But I still had that mortgage hanging over my head. Then a few months later, we moved to Queens and my savings were being depleted, paying for this mortgage now with a larger rent. I was hard-pressed. I kept begging God to help me. What motivated me? Well, not getting bankrupt, not getting back credit, etc. At one point, I realized God didn't really care for those things. I was fearful of losing my control over certain things in life, and I had to realize God cares for me to be conformed to Christ, to be safe in his church. Not so much for these other things that we tend to care for, often at the expense of the important things God cares for. As brothers say in our congregation, we love fellowship. 
And we're always there at fellowships that we consider fun, especially those that have food. But when it comes time to get together for outreach and evangelism, uh, it's usually the same group that makes it with seldom new additions. And why is that? I think some of us are still stuck trying to manage our own kingdoms and we play church, not really giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Well, back to my situation in New York, what happened? Well, I surrendered, as often do at many other times in my life when I realize I'm about to sell my soul to the devil's kingdom. I said, so be it. May I go bankrupt. May I ruin my credit. I won't care for it. The Lord be praised. I will put my trust in the Lord, and I will wait on the Lord. After I assured myself of that, the following week, the condo was sold and I was out of debt. <laughs> At one point in time, we need to make a switch from our fleshly identity to our divine identity, from answering to self to answering to God, from working for self to working for God, changing our political motives and our means. Here are some questions for you to explore this with your household. Number one, what is your goal at work? Number two, why do you get up in the morning? Do you fear losing your job? Do you get up because you want to impress someone, because you want to get somewhere significant in your career? I mean, I know when the morning comes and that alarm sounds, your flesh doesn't want you to get up. You still want to hug your bed and your pillow. So what is motivating you to get up in the morning? What is your goal at work? Did you just want to check things off on your agenda? Or did you just want to make sure you have money? Or should our reason for these things be to be ready to impact others with the grace of God, to be the salt and the light Jesus calls us to be in his kingdom? Question number three. Where are you leading your family or how are you leading your family? To the children and the young people who live at home, is your goal to honor your parents above everything else you do? Is that your first thought or is your first thought, I want to get something for me. I want my parents to do for me. I want them to get me stuff. Wives. Is your first thought to make sure you are the best helper for your husband that day? Husbands, do you start your day asking God for clarity and strength to glorify him and what you're pursuing to do that day? As children of God, with our identities firmly planted in him, we have new opportunities every day to glory God within the sphere of influence, or as Solomon refers to it, within our lot in life. Little things amount to great strides of growth and maturity. Nice things that you force yourself to say to your siblings, instead of criticisms or judgments, you want to look with your father's eyes, not with your own. You want to go out of your way to serve one another. If you're not really practicing this at home, you might be a hypocrite to think of doing it outside of your home only. Is it more important to get good grades 
or to obey your parents? Is it more important to further your agenda to do what you want to do or to obey your parents? Don't miss the forest for the trees. You know, Saul had to learn the hard way that it was more important to obey the Lord than to appear to be holy, than to appear to be religious. God's not about appearing a certain way. He's about giving us real success in Jesus. But if our success is not firmly planted in the Lord, God is not going to hesitate to make you fail so that you can ensure your success is in Christ. Question number four, how are you owning the kingdom? How are you being deliberate in your service to the Lord? Let's get to the next step of Jesus' walk. He called people to follow him. In Matthew four eighteen through 22 it reads, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You can't teach what you don't know or lead where you won't go. Mary and Joseph had put Jesus on a path, and he was not deviating from it. From the age of 12, Jesus knew who his father was and where he belonged, as it said in Luke 2.49. As Jesus sets out to fulfill this calling shortly after being baptized, he began preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and calling for other people to follow him. Someone who is sure of where they are and where they are going is capable of calling people to follow in their footsteps, even when the going gets tough. Notice how in this passage that we just read, a call is given. The call is, follow me. A goal is also set. The goal is, I will make you fishers of men. The call was answered, wasn't it? They left their families, and they didn't delay. They didn't even finish the task they were doing, leaving their boat and even their father behind. This calls for faith. They believed Jesus was calling them for a higher purpose. They knew they were made for something other than the lot they had accepted. They were walking by the first fruits of faith. These are the first fruits of faith. I remember when I was called, I thought my life was going to be that of an engineer. In the absence of God's direction, I had latched onto the idea I wanted to walk in the footsteps of my uncle, who was an electrical engineer at NASA at the time. When we're not following in Jesus' footsteps, we are adopting other footsteps that will certainly lead us to death. Only Jesus' footsteps lead to life. My uncle had not given me a call nor a goal. It was one I took upon myself 
That is the lot I wanted or desired, but God had other plans. God reserves the right to interrupt your plans. They need to be interrupted, don't they? If we're not following his call, we're on a road to perdition and death. If we really believe this, we will not only accept Jesus' call, but the goal of his call to be fishers of men, to get other people on the road to heaven, to follow in his footsteps. God's calling always disrupts. The call to follow Jesus is a call that involves disruption in our lives. We're often shy about that, but God makes no apologies, though. I don't know about you, but I hate to be interrupted. Most perfectionists do. So God had sent my brother Bob to interrupt my life, and I did not like where it was going. While he was sharing the gospel with me and pointing out how Jesus wanted me to become a fisher of men— I eventually felt honored and blessed, but also frightened and unworthy, doubtful of my ability. I also felt like I had other things I needed to do before I could accept such a challenge, pretty much like the people in the parable of the banquet. This parable illustrates the excuses that we make. It reads in Luke fourteen eighteen through 20, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. What are these excuses about? Well, there are three types of excuses given here. The first one is an excuse of property or real estate. And this shows how God disrupts our ownership of things. We think we're secure by owning land or owning something. We want something in our name. There is some comfort in that. We need to realize, though, that we own nothing. As Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We serve him by being good stewards of his provision, but to do so We need to give ourselves up as living sacrifices. Stop catering to ourselves and instead to God's kingdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 8 says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. This person here gave the excuse of a property he bought He wanted to see his field. Uh, We want to see our field. We need to fill our eyes with stuff we think are ours. That's covetousness. And our excuse to God is, well, I, I still haven't seen enough of the world. I still haven't had my fill yet. So that that covers that first excuse. The second excuse is really about our work or or our jobs. Showing that God disrupts our careers, our ambitions. Whether you're an employee or business owner, we often feel protective of the path we've chosen for ourselves and are not kind towards interlopers. But God says, forget about it. I'm putting you on a better road. I myself ended up on a road so totally different than what I set out to do, and I'm glad God interrupted my choice. 
I'm honored he considered a path for me so much higher and better than what I had decided. So that person's excuse was, uh, I need to try out my investment. I've bought so some oxen and I, I need to try them out. So the first one wanted to see and enjoy their investment. And this second guy, he just wants to experience his investment. We want to try out our career, we, what, we, what we've made for ourselves. We want to get a taste of worldly success or, or perhaps validation. And, and that can become an excuse to not give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now, the third excuse here was about marriage. The guy got married, so that was his excuse. So this is an excuse concerning relationships, meaning God disrupts our loyalty. Hey, family comes first, right? Uh, no, not unless you're talking about God's family. Matthew 6, Jesus gives us the prime directive. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Talking about food and clothing. You won't really be able to love and direct your family unless your priorities are in the right order. Mark twelve thirty and 31, uh, the first and greatest command along with the second, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the first and most important commandment. And the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So between these commandments, we see the priority here. It's God and me and then my spouse my children, my church, my neighbors. Uh, so the kingdom needs to be first for us. It needs to be first intellectually, emotionally, and financially so that I can be spiritually able to lead my family to salvation so that I can be able to call others to follow Jesus as I follow Jesus. And to do this, you will have to often to cut ties with those who will not promote God's agenda or who may become distracting to it. Family and relationships often become the number one excuse for marginalizing God's kingdom in our lives. And then we wonder why we feel empty or disenfranchised uh, when it comes to our spiritual fulfillment. Now, don't feel bad if You've used these excuses. I have. Even Moses, the friend of God, the meekest man ever, started out giving excuses why he couldn't follow God when the Lord spoke to him from a burning bush. He, he actually gave five excuses, but we're going to explore those in our next episode. 